Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing common sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Good morning, everyone. I am Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I am an associate professor at Washington and Lee University School of Law, where I teach all things business, including corporate governance and ethics, commercial law, including contracts. And I have focused intensely on personhood rights. The topic of today's episode is profiting from our pain. And it happens to be the title of an article by Carrie Martin Shelby, who is one of my colleagues from Washington and Lee. And we're generally going to talk about whether, you know, you can work in the world, whether you can make lots of money, whether you can invest without, quote unquote, selling out. Right. We're going to think about what it means uh, to be engaged with corporations, what it means to work with corporations and, you know, to take their money and know what they what else it is that they do. So I have two great guests today. First, Carrie Martin Shelby, who is my colleague at Washington and Lee, and Ron Goins, who works for the Movement of Black Lives. And I will let them each introduce themselves, starting with Carrie. Hello, it is so great to be on your show, Professor Carlos Chapman. Um, my name is Carrie Martin Shelby. I specialize in corporate and securities law at WNL School and Law School of Law. I teach a range of courses such as securities regulation, business associations, and investment funds. And my scholarly agenda has focused on the blurred distinction between public and private investment funds and the extent to which the law could provide innovative solutions to this blurred distinction. So I'm really, really excited to be here today to talk about my recent article, which was published in the California Law Review. And the title of this piece is Profiting from Our Pain, uh, Privileged Access to Social Impact Investing. Awesome. Thank you so much, Carrie. And next, Ron Goins, who has the benefit of also being from the best place in the world, which is Houston, Texas. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. This is true. H-Town down. Um, and uh, Ron going, um, and thank you so much again for inviting me um, to the show and so happy to be in conversation um, with you both. Um, I am the chief fundraiser for the Movement for Black Lives. Um, I am also director of development for the Reginald F. Lewis African American History Museum in Baltimore, and I have been in the nonprofit uh, arena for going on about 14, 15 years now, and having conversations around this topic has become more and more nuanced as donors and institutions have become a lot more discerning about who they can enter relationship with. So I'm really excited to have this conversation now to sort of break down some of those nuances with you both. Thank you so much for joining us, Ron. Um, And I should also add that uh, Ron and I go way, way back Mm -hmm. to when I was on the board of Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast in Houston, uh, when he was a baby development director, I guess. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) And now he has just moved up and out and and now does even, even greater things with even bigger organizations. Okay, so for my first topic, I want to discuss, you know, why it matters where the money comes from. Carrie, you've mentioned this public-private distinction. 
We've, uh, you know, we had all these corporations last year who made Black Lives Matter statements, like we love Black people, um, who had special marketing campaigns and did all these things. They gave money to activist organizations. But then some of them turned around and invested in like unicorns that do horrible things, or they gave to the very politicians who opposed the, you know, Black Lives Matter movement later, and we couldn't really figure that stuff out. Um, So I just want to start with you and talk about, you know, what, what it is that your paper discusses, like, why do those gaps matter? And like, why does it matter where the money comes from? Absolutely. So I'll very briefly start by giving a broad overview of my paper. And please stop me, Carlos, if I'm if I'm getting too much into the weeds. You know I love this paper, so I could talk for two hours about it. But in really broad strokes, the thesis of the paper, it's the first within the scholarly discourse on this topic to explore how the federal securities laws or, or how the public-private divide under those laws in particular lead to exploitation opportunities within the social impact investing space. And I argue that this could happen in two ways. Number one, it that divide allows elite investors to exclusively profit from community pain. And number two, this public-private divide can obscure potential negative externalities that flow from these investments. And so I briefly define social impact investing in the paper um, Along the continuum of socially conscious strategies, social impact investments have the potential to generate the most impact because they are often organized as funds and they exclusively target enterprises that generate some sort of measurable impact uh, related to a large basket of causes such as renewable energy, uh, microfinance, um, climate. So, so, so the impact could span several different categories. And um, it's still a relatively small industry compared to other socially conscious strategies, but many commentators predict that it's set to grow exponentially due to the so-called millennial thirst to do well while doing good, because I, I, I may have forgot to mention that these vehicles are seeking to generate an impact while also earning a return for their underlying investors. Um, and it's also set to grow um, due to the COVID pandemic um, and many of the injustices that are continuously unveiled by the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so, however, you know, many of these investors are organized as private equity funds. So, this means that they don't have to register under federal securities laws. And I talk about structurally under the law why this is the case. This is because they really need to rely on investment flexibilities. They're often investing in startup companies that are considered more risky. And in exchange, they have to restrict their investors to elite investors, such as wealthy individuals or institutional investors, including pension plans, endowments, and insurance companies. And the theory is that these sorts of investors can protect themselves from some of these riskier startup companies. But here's where I kind of get into the heart of my thesis and that because of this exclusion, targeted community members are for the most part excluded 
as investors. And so this removes their lived experiences that they could potentially provide as shareholders, albeit their power as shareholders is more limited than the power that they would have as managers. But I also talk about how diversity is severely restricted uh, within this sector, more so than other um, areas of the financial sector. And so the extent to which someone belonging to a targeted community would be included in managing these enterprises is even more limited. And I talk about how this creates um, opportunities to generate more community pain. And I try to get into some possible um, examples and I categorize this possibility of advertently or inadvertently creating more community pain, either in the short run or the long run as a negative externality. You know, when I, when I read your paper, what I think of it is, I think of it as like white savior investing, right? It's, you know, it is a group of elite people, a group of, you know, these pension funds are not diverse in their management, even though they take money from all of us when they, when they get funded. VC funds are not diverse. And you have this group of external people who are kind of deciding what is best for us and what is best for our community when they're doing social impact investing, right? And so we know what's wrong with white savior complex, yet when we, you know, go buy our Patagonia fleece or buy whatever it is that is a, a social impact company, you know, we don't have a problem perpetuating that. Um, I, you know, I think about the company Four Ocean, like I remember when you presented this, um, and those Four Ocean co- commercials where it's like, you know, two white guys go on a vacation and decide that beaches are dirty. And then they have all the, they, they create a job where all the natives just clean up all the trash that came from Western countries and polluted this pristine beach. And it's like, donate to our organization that cleans up oceans that we got dirty in the first place. Um, and so it's that kind of cycle of like, I'm doing good, but I exploited in the first place um, that I think your paper really, really highlights. And the idea that the solution to past exploitation is a form of kind of more exploitation. Um, And that's also why I like the title profiting from our pain Um, because they are generating revenue. They are generating profits from the very pain that they have caused, right? From the very pain they have caused. Right. Right. And can they, can they resolve, can they actually achieve their stated objective? Will they create more pain through gentrification Mm -hmm. (laughs) down the road? Um, Are we profiting from our own pain? And, you know, this leads to a very interesting discussion related to, reparations I yeah. think so yeah uh, absolutely I mean we could talk for a while I mean I was looking at one company um, involved with resolving food apartheid in our communities for example where it's so hard to access healthy food options and 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 grocery stores stores and this is actually a really complicated need within our community that is interconnected to all of these other issues. And if you are not someone who is actually from this community, it may be very difficult to understand just how interconnected our community needs are. Right. And, you know, in thinking about how to fix it, um, I'm going to pivot to Ron because, you know, I know the movement for Black Lives. And so the first thing I want you to do, Ron, is tell us what the movement for Black Lives is versus Black Lives Matter. But you know, when we think about some of these negative externalities, some of these issues, I know that that is what the movement for Black Lives is looking to fix. But some of the very companies that Carrie writes about in her paper 
are the companies that want to invest in the movement for Black Lives. So first, let us know what movement for Black Lives is. And then talk a little bit about how y'all are working to try to reconcile this and like minimize these externalities. Yeah. So uh, the movement for Black Lives is a uh, ecosystem of over 150 organizations. It was born out of a uh, conference that happened in 2014, where activists came together on the heels of the uh, killings of Michael Garner and uh, Trayvon Martin and um, all of those, uh, you know, lives that we lost. And this uh, organization was uh, born. If I could define the difference between us and BLM, it is that um, we consider um, Black Lives Matter to be a uh, member organization under um, within our ecosystem, um, but we are an umbrella organization and we are truly a movement. It is not just us. We consider our ecosystem organizations to be the work and to be who we are. Um, and so I think that that's sort of the real difference. Um, in terms of how we are trying to tackle these issues, it's honestly a ongoing conversation. We haven't gotten there yet. You know, we have scaled really quickly. We've gone from a staff of two to a staff of about 30 in like nine months. Wow. So we are still having conversations and still trying to build our internal infrastructure to answer those questions. The great thing is that we put out a call to philanthropy last year for resources and funding. And philanthropy actually answered the call. Um, we, it, we sort of set a floor for about $50 million um, that we wanted um, folks to um, invest in us, general support, money, and asking philanthropy to trust us to um, know what our community needs and to uh, uh, trust us to execute on the work. So that is what we are now in the process of doing. But in that thoughtfulness, um, you know, I have been, and I've shared this with you, and um, we've talked about it, but what I've done in other organizations is I have put together a framework um, called the Principles of Corporate Engagement. And so what that, you know, very, what I think is probably a, a, a novice approach, I would love for, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Joe to look <laughs> at this framework, but it is basically a way to um, ensure that if we are going to engage in corporate philanthropy, that there is no undue, undue influence that that corporation could insert onto the organization, that they are true partners and it is not a quid pro quo. It is also a situation where if there is room for a company to, if, if they do something or there's some sort of like, malfeasance or scandal that we also have mechanisms in place to allow them to course correct and to be in relationship with us so that we have a direct line to decision makers who are able to then hear from folks on the ground about what the necessary actions need to be. And so all of that sort of like lays out the way that we want to engage. But to be very, very frank, we have not decided that we are going to get into the corporate philanthropy game. We're lucky that we have, that we are resourced 
um, from uh, places that have to require us to go into that space yet. But it is definitely a conversation that we want to have because what does it mean to look at the pillars that the movement for Black Lives stand on, which is abolitionist, you know, feminist, you know, um, a Black queer feminist lens, and we are anti-capitalist. So what does it mean to be anti-capitalist but need capital? And going after that for the community. So some of the conversations that we have been a part of have been now that we have some resources that can help us sustain the movement, how do we then use those reserves um, in a way that not only sustains the organization, but allows the communities in which we represent to also benefit? Because at the end of the day, one of the things that I have been sort of like seeing from the rooftops as we've been trying to figure out whether or not we're going to um, really get into the corporate um, fundraising space is the conversation around controversial wealth and harm does not begin and end with corporations. There are foundation partners that we have that have really, really um, interesting and controversial histories about how they got their wealth and how they're investing their wealth because there are some folks who are investing money that are in direct um, uh, against their grantees. They're in, 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 in direct conflict with their grantees. So how do you start to have the conversation with internally about where we're going to go and what is going to be our position when we still need to be engaged. And so I come from the standpoint where I think there is a space where we can be in relationship and be engaged in some sort of um, uh, conversation that gets folks to um, have advice from an organization like us and to have relationship with an organization like us. We may not take their money, but what we will do is be in a relationship with them to get them to a space where hopefully one day we can engage in a more substantive um, conversation about what it means to take their money and to execute on all the great stuff that we have going on. So, yeah. You know, Ron, what that makes me think about is, you know, Carrie's discussion of public versus private and, and what all that means, but also, you know, your idea that you know, y'all are choosing to be an anti-capitalist movement. Um, and, and, you know, so Carrie, I wonder if in doing your research and, you know, all the work you've done on investment funds and investing over the years, you know, is it possible for there to be a capitalist solution? Have you thought about, you know, how can we fix this? Is there anything we can do as everyday people? Um, or do we simply have to abandon capitalism? That's a great question that I'm still pondering to be honest with you, I think about that question every single day. I struggle with the question. Many would describe my scholarship as being bold, radical even. And I'm not even advocating that we eradicate commodification of community pain altogether. I'm simply advocating for more transparency, uh, right? So that organizations can actually engage with corporations. And this makes me think of your 
research, Carlos, about, well, how do we even define the corporation? Are we talking about a single entity? Are we talking about all of their subsidiaries? And how do we know that these subsidiaries and other corporate entities within a family of enterprises, how do we know that they are supportive of the goal that we are trying to advocate? And it's, it's, it's a very difficult question. And I plan to kind of dig a little bit deeper in my book project. And so my book project more narrowly focuses on black pain as a commodity. And I really get into the history by using a racial capitalism lens and critical theory lens. And as I dig deeper in that research, it makes it even more difficult for me to accept <laughs> that, that it's possible to make these sorts of partnerships. But I still think it's worth having the conversation to think about like, okay, as it stands now, this is where we are. It's very, very difficult to access capital, to even survive. And, and what can we do as individuals? I think, you know, I think there's a lot to do in terms of knowledge. Um, there's a lot of talk about financial literacy and diversity when it comes to the financial markets in our communities. And I think those conversations can be really helpful, but they're limited if we're not further engaging the extent to which the overall structure of these financial markets are inherently unfair or if they're serving as mechanisms to commodify our pain with zero access, participation, right? So, so, so if we could really start to, and I think that our research is, is making that push to further engage our communities, I think that there are a lot of hurdles for corporate law scholars to engage in these sorts of conversations, but we are fighting the good fight. And secondly, you know, using our voice. I think we have received a lot of messages that have told us that our voice does not matter, that have told us that our voice is too small, but to the extent that we do increase our knowledge, I think it's important to call out in whatever way that we can, the problematic structures um, within these business and securities law frameworks. And we could do that in so many different ways now, right? I mean, there's a lot of negative talk about social media, but I think it's a really good avenue to call out some of these problematic behaviors on an individual level. This show is a perfect forum for us to get our voices out there, blogs, right? I mean, there we, we can get our voice out there, which then could lead to grassroots movements and, and other sorts of movements that I'm still hopeful for. I mean, so, so your original question was, do I think we could still have capitalism as a structure? And so, right? I don't know. I'm still really grappling with that question. I have a similar problem because I really like nice things. <laughs> <laughs> I really right. like nice things. I, I agree with you. You know, and I really like having money. But, you know, you, you mentioned my research and I'm excited about your book project because it dovetails with my slavery and commercial law paper that I'm working on right now. But, you know, I, I think one of the biggest problems we have in corporate law and in business law is that we refuse to acknowledge the origins. We refuse to acknowledge that banking, modern banking has its foundation in slavery, which is black pain. Um, modern capitalism has its foundation in slavery, which is black pain. Um, the way that our workplaces are run, right? The idea that if you look on Westlaw, 
and you look at labor and employment law, it's called master servant. Like that is what it is called. And that is not a coincidence. That is a reason. Um, so, so much of what we do as modern capitalists has a foundation in black pain internationally. Um, and so how do we reconcile that? How do we recover from that? When, you know, if you do some tracing, it's pretty hard to trace any modern corporation or any modern bank or any modern entity and not get to black pain, either through redlining, through slavery, through segregation, through something. And if we're going to engage in this system, you know, how do we do that and call ourselves activists and call ourselves, you know, woke when we're doing it every day? But then how do we also do it if we don't know? Right. How do we do it if we don't know? Um, I always say, you know, you can't educate yourself out of poverty. Right. No amount of financial literacy is going to change the fact that you don't have enough money at the end of the month. Right. Yet everything is about financial literacy. Nothing's about education, about entrepreneurship or education about, you know, the history of capitalism. So it always, always fascinates me. Now, Ron, you mentioned, you know, some of your foundations, you know, it's, and I, I appreciate this point because it's Carrie's point and it's a point that I've made in my scholarship. It's not just about taking money from corporations that can be problematic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can take, take money from nonprofits. You can take money from individuals. You know, I think about Mackenzie Scott and all the money she's put around out in the world, which I'm available and Carrie's available too, um, Mackenzie, if you want to <laughs> right. find some, some things. Because we did mention that we like money. So right. just FYI, we will take it even though we, you know, I feel a little guilty, but not that guilty. Um, but, you know, I think my next point, I would love you to elaborate on what that means, because it kind of dub- dovetails into our next conversation and some of what Carrie and I have done. You know, a lot of people make the assumption that it, if, it, if it's the United Way or if it is, you know, ex nonprofit, nonprofit means good, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. corporation means bad. Yeah. So if I'm a law student or I'm a graduate student and I want to do good work, I go work for a nonprofit and all my friends who go work for corporations are evil. Yeah. Um, can you unpack that a little bit and explain what you mean about like the sources of even foundation money? Yeah. Um, and it is a point that uh, is really interesting because like you said, there's something about someone calling themselves a foundation or a nonprofit where they immediately get this benefit of the doubt that they are benevolent that they are good and all these things, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, I have even doing this work um, with Black-led, Black-centered movements um, and institutions, I have had to unlearn so much about what I was taught, you know, in the nonprofit space. You know, the way that I engage around um, end of year, end of year for a nonprofit seems to be very corporate focused. It's all about getting folks to, you know, your taxes and that kind of thing and get your gift in before the end of the year. And there have even been folks who have tried to take the end of year giving Tuesday framework for nonprofits and make it be like reparations. And it's like, that's not what reparations is. That's not what it's about. You can't just say, oh, I gave to this nonprofit. I'm a white person, so I have participated in reparations. That's not what it is. There's so much about that that is not that. But as it relates to the foundations, I think that 
we have families and we have corporations who have decided to put together a fund um, or some formation of wealth that they are going to use for what they call the public good foundation. And so when they start to dole that money out to organizations, there is a dynamic that becomes engaged. There is this foundation who is the grantor and the person who is asking for money, the um, organization. And so there's a power dynamic that exists just from the way that the system is set up. And then you get into the way that foundations often create cumbersome and um, oftentimes intrusive reporting and tracking requirements for organizations that actually impede their work. But they need the money, so they have to do this, you know, tracking and engage in the process. So what we have been trying to do is to get foundations to understand, one, we want you to be more than, we want it to be more than a transactional relationship. We actually want to change the philanthropic landscape so we have conversations with foundations regardless of whether or not we are trying to receive or, or solicit funds from them, where we are talking about we want to be in deep partnership with you. The way that we are going to be in deep partnership with you is going to be to call you in about some of your practices that may not be conducive to the work that we're doing. So we have had conversations with foundations about the source of their wealth. You know, um, some of these families, I don't want to name any names, but some of these families that have large, large foundations, the source of their wealth comes from not so great places, slavery, um, lots of uh, different sort of like mechanisms that cause harm to the very communities that they are then trying to grant money to and to grant um, uh, these funds to. So we have those conversations. We also have the conversation about um, why those reporting requirements sometimes impede the progress. I mean, when you when you look at a foundation application, so much about them is based around an organization already having the resources it needs. Mm -hmm. Do you have an executive director, your board, all this stuff? So many grassroots folks who are on the ground doing the work, that's not the way that it sort of happens. That's not the way that it's designed. And so getting foundations and stuff to understand that to really sort of like do the work that they want to do, that they have to actually um, be open to understanding that they are, that it, it is not some place of hubris where they are just doing all of this great work and don't have anything to answer for. They do. And we need to have a space where we can be in conversation about that because I believe, and this is probably, you know, a controversial remark in itself, but I think that one of the conversations that we can actually have is around reparations is to getting philanthropy to understand the part that they play in that and giving folks some unrestricted support without all of the strings and stuff that come attached. So I think that that sort of is the way that 
um, we need to start having the conversation with about nonprofits and foundations. Like you are not exempt from getting all the smoke that, that people that people have for corporations. Um, but I but I will say to um, just to sort of close the loop on it is being in relationship is important. I remember um, it was a very brief second. But Starbucks had not allowed their um, employees to wear Black Lives Matter um, paraphernalia um, while they were, you know, doing their job. And it got into the media really quickly. I was on the phone with decision makers at Starbucks within the hour of that day to have the conversation about what that means, what the implications of that are, and they changed their policy within a 24-hour period because we had a direct line. Like, those are the kinds of benefits that you get when you are able to have conversation and be in relationship with, you know, folks who may have controversial wealth or have controversial platforms. You know, what I, what I find interesting about what you're saying um, is it highlights the difference between relationship versus paternalism. You know, the, the idea that, you know, I, the foundation person or I, the corporation, know what you should do and what you need to do mm-hmm. as this organization that needs money from me simply because I have more money. Yeah. Right. And, right. Yeah. The idea that I am smarter because I have more money yeah. without any proof. Right. You yeah. just happen to have some intergenerational wealth. You're not necessarily the expert about the community that you're serving. Um, so I mean, I'm very excited I could bring the two of you together because clearly all of Carrie's work and everything Ron does, you know, kind of dovetails together and you're doing the same thing in different spaces, which highlights what Carrie said about, we have a lot of ways that we can, can be activists and we can make these changes. She's doing it in scholarship, Ron's doing it through organizations, but we're all trying to get to the same endpoint. Um, so it's very exciting for me to bring you together. Now, we've thrown out a bunch of terms and every episode, you know, the show is called Getting Common. And the idea is that, um, you know, I really want people to get an understanding of some of these very, very complex things in a basic way. I always start with a law professor. <laughs> so, Carrie, can you explain to us first, what's the difference between a public company and a private company? What's what's the difference between those two? Right. So, so in my scholarship, I am distinguishing between public and private under federal securities laws. And so there is a range of privateness along a a spectrum of transparency. And so a publicly traded company is still private, but they are public because they have to register under the federal securities laws. So for example, a company like Apple, publicly traded, you can Google Apple and find a plethora of information about the company provided by a range of experts and intermediaries and commentators. Um, You can go on the SEC's website and find detailed and balanced information about the company because they are required to register with the SEC, which means that they must file um, a very lengthy disclosure document, which provides information about the company, 
Um, and it's supposed to really compel companies to also provide any negative in- information, right? And so, so the goal is that investors have access to all material information about this company so that they can make more informed investment choices in terms of how to allocate their capital. So those would be our private companies that are publicly traded and they are available to all investors, right? And so the term that involves all investors would be retail investors. So anyone could go on their Robinhood app and purchase shares in Apple. Uh, As you move along that spectrum of transparency, you get less and less information. So uh, a private company is privately held if they are not required to register under the federal securities laws. They are exempt from having to provide all of this information. So it can become more difficult to find information about a privately held company online. There are detailed restrictions on the extent to which they can advertise. Um, And the theory, right, the theory is that they are actually private because they're more risky. And as a result, they are restricted to elite, I, I call them elite investors, such as wealthy individuals or institutional. And the theory is that they can protect themselves. They don't need all of these disclosures, right? They don't need all of these disclosures. But the problem that I've tried to repeatedly highlight in my research across a range of contexts uh, would be the extent to which a private company that is privately held and not required to provide information, right? Are these companies generating negative externalities that could then lead to systemic risk? Meaning, are people who are not involved with the transaction at all, people who are not buying shares in a privately held company, are these people or communities somehow harmed by the actions of a company that is privately held under the federal securities laws? I how hope that makes sense. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and the question I had is like, how can our pension funds and retirement funds invest in private companies if they're allegedly more risky? Like, how is that even possible? I identify that as a loophole um, in the federal <laughs> securities laws. And, and, and it's a loophole in, in, in my humble opinion, because pension plan, they qualify as one of those elite institutional investors. Um, they're, they're these massive funds. They're subject to another layer of regulation um, under state law or ERISA. So they're supposed to be able to protect themselves being the institution, meaning that they can invest in privately held companies such as hedge funds, for example, that are in private equity funds that are riskier. Now, there has been like well-documented empirical research that pension plans have done a poor job choosing hedge funds and that they have chosen hedge funds that are costlier and, and, and you know, not necessarily generating the higher returns that they were hoping that these allocations would achieve. And of course, who gets hurt? The retiree beneficiaries of these pension plans who, right, again, they're not considered elite investors. They're the retail investors who actually are not allowed to directly invest in these privately held enterprises. 
but they could still access these instruments and enterprises through pension plans. And it's questionable whether or not these institutions are doing a good job protecting their underlying retiree beneficiaries, right? And so it's interesting in thinking about how this relates to social impact mm-hmm. funds, right? It's, but it's still very much related to our discussion and thinking about loopholes under the federal securities laws and these different levels of privateness and thinking about the universe of private companies. So, you know, it's, it's year end, as um, Ron mentioned, and, you know, so many of us will sit down with our, um, like we have TIAA at universities or your Vanguard or whatever account, and you've got all those options to choose from. Um, is there anything you can do as the person looking at your retirement account to get more information about where the company is putting your money? It's hard, right? I mean, first of all, <laughs> the time it would require. Right. It would require a lot of time to understand all of the various categories that are presented to you. Um, You're looking at different funds, different investment classes, and just even understanding the the different options, I think, is very, very difficult. There are resources. I think like Morningstar, for example, is a good resource to get a lay of the land in terms of like different ratings that are assigned to different funds. And it's also important to understand from a regulatory standpoint that funds are different than a security that you would purchase through Robinhood. A fund is like a basket of securities and bonds and other instruments. And so they're supposed to be, you know, subject to even more regulation and additional sorts of requirements under this law called the Investment Company Act of 1940. And I mention that because it becomes even more complicated to understand how to get information about the fines. The advisors of the fund are often a different entity and you could, many of these advisors are registered. You could find information also on the SEC's website about these funds. You could look directly on the funds websites and, you know, we we can get advice through whatever is offered to us through our retirement programs. But it can be very, very difficult, I think, to equip yourself with enough information. And I think that many of us kind of just go with the strategy of, you know, of just choosing like exchange traded funds at a certain point in time, right? And transitioning to other sorts of classes, depending on where you are um, along your, you know, retirement horizon. So I think it's just very, very difficult to access information. I agree. And I always uh, tell people that I am guilty. You know, I teach this stuff. And when it comes to picking my retirement, I just like check a box and spend like five minutes on it. Um, one, cause I feel like I can't change it <laughs> and like no amount of research, uh, is going to make a material impact. Um, but also I don't have the time to dig into every single aspect of the retirement fund. And I think about the return on investment of my time, which is really unfortunate because that's how most of us are going to retire is investing in these funds. Now, Ron, you know, you have kind of the privilege and the pain of having to vet corporations and vet funds 
as y'all are taking money, so or, or thinking about taking money or thinking about forming these partnerships. Um, so how have, have some of the things that Carrie has talked about, you know, the idea that some things are public and some things are private, you know, you've got investment funds that might want to invest in, in Movement for Black Lives, or I shouldn't say invest, donate uh, to Movement for Black Lives. <laughs> yeah. How do y'all, you know, navigate that? How do you navigate, like, processing all these information, this information and, and trying to make decisions? It's, it's hard. Um, and honestly, it is a case-by-case case, uh, basis um, because I think that you have the idea that a company may be doing great work, but like you mentioned before, um, when folks come to us, it may not always be the um, parent company. It may be a subsidiary or of, of, of something else that may be more controversial than what we are, uh, than, than the actual entity that we're dealing with. You know, I remember having a conversation with the black franchisees of Chick-fil-A. Now, Chick-fil-A, the parent company, may not be so great in some people's eyes, but these black franchisees wanted to make an impact, give money, and do, you know, some good stuff to counteract that. Do you take that money or don't you? It's that kind of conversation um, that we have to have. And that includes, because I've always been of the um, thought that as a development person sitting in this seat, I don't want the way that we build our resources and the way that we go about um, resourcing the work to solely rest in my department. This is a organizational conversation. And so I bring in the folks who have uh, they're ear to the street. I bring in my folks who are doing the policy, who are doing the field work and say, hey, how do you feel about this? I remember um, we just did a very large push in Minneapolis, moved lots of people there for their defund vote um, of the police. And there was an education campaign on the ground around uh, what that meant um, to change the city's charter to a Department of Public Safety from a police department. And so we moved big resources for that. So in my mind, this goes back to my conversation about unlearning things. The first thing I wanted to do was, okay, well, let's get Uber involved to get us some rides so that people have that. Let's get the uh, hotel comp. Let's, get to, let, let's talk to the folks to do that. You know, blah, blah, blah. And what I was told was that there's actually a really controversial um, conversation around some of those companies in that locality. So again, it's a case-by-case -case basis because you have the company, then you have the entities that they may own, and then you also have to deal with the um, entities that they may own and the harm they're doing in certain locales. So it becomes this very nuanced kind of way of having to vet. So it's really a case-by-case -case basis. And what we do is try to make sure that whenever we make those decisions, that it is happening in a very thoughtful way and that we're bringing as many voices to the table as possible. 
So, you know, originally I had other thoughts for what we do for this last segment, but I feel like we've all been touching on this issue and I just want to go ahead and go there. You know, we've been talking about solutions and possible solutions and both of you have mentioned reparations at some point. Um, And, you know, I think the reason I get to that point too, when I talk about corporations and money and social impact investing and, and philanthropy, you know, for me, I have a hard time finding a way to fix this other than to level the playing field in some way and kind of have a social reset. In my mind, the only way to fix capitalism is to equalize capitalism or else we have to abandon capitalism. Um, so for, for each of you, I would like you know to know, one, if you can wave a magic wand, create a perfect regulatory system, or if you can't wave a magic wand and create a perfect regulatory system and kind of fix this income inequality, what do reparations look like for you, right? What would reparations look like for you? And, and, and what is the framework for that? And I, I'll go ahead and start with Ron and go in reverse. Ron, what, what, would, what would reparations look like for you? Or if not reparations, you know, you have an idea of how to fix capitalism without reparations. Huh, come on, Carlos. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is I only a, ask the easy questions, right? Just no, the easy ones. Yeah. That is a huge, huge, huge uh question um how do you fix it in a ask it one more time give me one more one more time so how do you fix capitalism without reparations and if you can't fix capitalism without reparations what does reparations look like to you well I don't, I mean, when you talk about reparations, you are talking about harmed communities. So I don't think, and I think that capitalism itself, its existence is meant to keep those communities where they are. So I don't think that there is a space where those communities help to maintain that (laughs) structure. So that's personally. Um, So that's that. I think that in terms of how reparations can maybe help to change the landscape and the conversation um, that happens within a framework of capitalism, I think that the way that we sort of have worked, because we actually have a reparations working group at the Movement for Black Lives. And we work to try to answer some of these very, very um, interesting questions. Um, I think that there is an acknowledgement of harm that has to happen um, in the reparations framework. Um, And I think that there is also some ongoing repair. It's not just a a cash in hand, it's like ongoing repair and investment that also has to um, happen. And I think that if we can start to at least get to a place where folks who have wealth who know the source of their wealth and, 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 and what it has done to certain communities can start to acknowledge some of that pain and engage in conversations around restorative justice and healing economics. I think that that can help us uh, transition and have a new conversation in the capitalism framework. You know, I like the, um, I like the acknowledgement component, right? Like, you know, it's not enough just to write the checks. We, we need some public acknowledgement of the harm that is done um, 
which, you know, maybe talks, maybe takes like not opposing critical race theory and maybe takes uh, telling people, you know, what, what the true history of things are. You know, it's not just about a chick. Now, Carrie, Carrie, what is same question for you? I won't repeat it, but, you know, same question. What does it what does it look like to fix capitalism or to pay reparations? Right. You know, questions that I'm still grappling with, but I but I'm happy to share some of my initial thoughts from this sort of financial regulatory perspective. I think it is essential that regulators recognize the fact that private enterprises can generate negative externalities that could lead to systemic risk through the creation of black pain. And we could kind of go backwards in time and say, look, we have to admit that the predecessors of JP Morgan and some of these other banks, as you investigate in your research, Carlos, they have contributed to this black pain. It's generated negative externalities and systemic risk. I tried to get into this and in defining black pain and that it's not simply just restricted to black communities, but it's like a virus that spreads Mm -hmm. Um, across the nation and across the globe. So that sort of acknowledgement from a regulatory perspective, I think is important. And this massive regulatory body, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, just issued a public statement um, identifying climate risk as systemic risk. And so I think it's a really nice opportunity for me to really engage this sort of uh, question or or. I don't know, advocate that FSOC similarly designate the creation of additional black pain by private enterprises as a negative externality. Um, and thinking about how to fix capitalism, you know, accountability is huge. Um, what about, you know, can we hold private enterprises accountable for the promises that they have made to the black community, um, for the promises that <laughs> they, they hope to achieve in terms of uh, generating a, a positive impact. How does this relate to transparency and disclosures under the federal securities laws? What about these diversity frameworks that are kind of floating around? How can we further engage black people in managing um, enterprises as managers and shareholders? Um, and access, like how can we access capital? How can we access um, capital, both, you know, as entrepreneurs and also as shareholders. So, so these are some of the things that I have thought extensively about in terms of how do we fix this very massive question? How do we fix capitalism? Yeah. There's also the idea of racial capitalism as well that we have. To yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole episode. That's a whole episode. <laughs> so, you know, I would say, you know, my solution, the more I think about it, you know, I think what we need is the ability to mess up. And you can't mess up without capital. So I, I'm getting very reductive lately. And I'm like, just give, give, give all of us some money. And I think it should be paid by private actors and public actors too. You know, everyone is complicit in it. But I can't find a solution that doesn't involve dispersing money to people who've been harmed. Like, and I think that has to be the first step. And the idea that it has some sort of paternalistic, it's like, no, let me mess up with my money the way that generations of privileged people have messed up with their money is, is the way that I've thought about it. Um, so I, I don't know that I can, like the more that I research, the more that I come to that conclusion is where I, where I end up. Like, just give me some capital and let me mess up like Zuckerberg and everybody else. <laughs> you know, sure. let me accidentally leak everybody's private information and pay a few billion dollars in fines. Yeah. 
and still have billions more, right? Let me do that. Yeah. All right. So we have one minute left. So, which means this conversation was just so, so engaging. So I want to thank our guests for joining us today. Uh, Greatly, greatly appreciated. It's always good to have so many friends on the show. Um, You can find us on YouTube, on iTunes, um, on Spotify. It's, It's streaming live on Facebook right now. Next week's episode is called What's in a Name? And we are going to talk about Confederate monuments and how things are named and what the impact of that has with a focus on our institution, Washington and Lee. You can guess who the Lee is. And my guests next week will be Rob Lee, Ty Sidwell, and members of the Washington Lee community who played a strong role in the movement to get the name changed, which we were not successful in. So we're going to talk about how that outcome and that decision of the trustees has impacted us. Thank you all for listening today. I am available on all platforms at Carla C. You can also email me through the show. And, uh, you know, I'm out there, I'm around, and our guests are also on social media too. So thank you very, very much, Carrie and Ron, for joining us today and, and, and just starting this conversation and how we think about what to do um, about capitalism, about social impact investing, where we spend our money, um, and how we just engage with the world. You know, can we do it without selling out is the question. And I don't know that the answer is yes, right? I don't know. So thank you all very, very much. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.